It's very nice to see you all here. Um, this is timely, as the COP26 summit continues past the deadline in Glasgow. Um, I'm joined by two people who have more investment than most of us in dealing with climate change. Dave Lowe is an atmospheric science legend. He was one of the first to find proof that humans were driving global warming. And for 40 years, he has been sounding the warning. It hasn't been an easy road. His recent memoir, The Alarmist, charts his course from a high school dropout to an internationally respected scientist. And he worked on the IPCC's fourth report, I think, which subsequently won a Nobel Prize. So he is effectively a Nobel Prize winning scientist. Um, Tom Doig is the editor of a collection of essays called Living with Climate Change, Living with the Climate Crisis, I should say, because it is a crisis now, it's not just change. And in it, he describes his own experience in an insanely hot Melbourne in 2009 when the Black Sunday fires swept across the state. Five years later, when the Hazelwood coal mine burned out of control in the next heat wave. Um, he wrote a book called Hazelwood about that. He escaped back to New Zealand as the Black Summer Fires of 2019 took hold of Australia. And what he writes is that, and this is not a jolly message, whatever we do from here, we can't make it better, we can only stop it getting worse. Please welcome Dave Lowe, Tom Doig. Um, I want to come to you, Dave, first and talk about COP26, of course, which the, the, the deadline negotiations are still continuing. It aimed to keep 1.5 alive, the target of the Paris Agreement 2015. Will it keep 1.5 alive? Uh, so far, unfortunately not. Um, <coughs> the COP meetings, there are a series of pledges made by governments from around the world as to how they're going to reduce carbon emissions. And the last estimate I saw this morning was that if you add up the current pledges, then um, the temperature would increase to 2.7 degrees, so well past the 1.5 degree Paris target. And, and, the, and even if the pledges were fulfilled, which of course the pledges were not entirely fulfilled after Paris, were they? That's right. Uh, sadly not. Uh, they are just pledges. Uh, there are no teeth there to make governments persevere and really change their economies to reduce the carbon emissions. So sadly, um, temperatures have continu continued to increase as emissions increase. What do you think, Dave, when you hear what comes out of COP26, for example, they seem to be not even stating the obvious. They're not even prepared to say on a broad basis, stop using fossil fuels, are they? Yeah, um, I guess from, from me, I mean, I've, I've watched the situation for a long, long time and it's absolutely horrible. Um, we know what's going on, we know, we know what's causing this problem and yet year after year these COP meetings come along and this is now number 26, I think Paris was number 15. Um, it's the same old story. There are a bunch of pledges and really um, the world just goes on emitting fossil fuels, coal, oil and petrol. Uh, there are plans afoot to extract even more in the way of these fossil fuels. And we know already that if we um, burn the uh, resources that have already been discovered, that's already going to blow us out of the water well past one and a half degrees. Um, so for me, it's a a kind of a mix of pe pessimism when I see the politicians. But, Kim, I have to say that I'm very optimistic when on the sidelines of COP you see initiatives from financial organisations, 
as well as engineering solutions which point the way to a different world. We, uh, we already have the tools to sort this, if only we would adopt them. Let us remember that you are an electrical engineer as well as an atmospheric scientist. <laughs> I'm also a Kiwi bloke. <laughs> Let's talk about the fossil fuels because, um, Tom, in your coverage of the Hazelwood mine, you found an interesting evidence of hypocrisy vis-à-vis Paris 2015. Yeah, thanks, Kim. Um, I mean, look, I've, I'm, I find the, the COP meeting sort of increasingly um, depressing and repetitive. Um, but I was... Is it important? Or do you it's... think, is it Greta's blah, blah, blah? No, no, look, I think, I think Greta's amazing, and I think the work she's doing is, is super incredible and inspiring, but I, st I still feel like it's like the, 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 the platitude that we're sleepwalking off a cliff is pretty salient. You know, it feels like... It's still such business as usual with such gradualism built into it. And, you know, with the, you know, following it, the situation in Australia, and, you know, it's like all of a sudden the Murdoch press is like, guess what, guys, climate change is real. And Scott Morrison's like, we're going to do something about it by 2050. Um, just at the point where the rest of the world's going, we've got, mm, what is it, eight years and one month? <laughs> and they're, they're setting these, these three-decade timelines. But when I was following the um, uh, COP, COP25, six years ago, um, so I was writing a book about um, the Hazelwood mine fire um, in Australia, which is a coal mine that was, that's owned by Onji Group, which is the, the biggest um, electricity company in the world. Uh, in the world? Yeah. yeah. Is it? And it's a, it's a multinational based in France, and its main owners is the, the French government. And when COP25 was in Paris, Onji was one of the major sponsors of COP. And just like the levels of hypocrisy... And that were just so kind of, um, so on the nose, but kind of perfectly summed up how, how stuck we are in terms of money driving politics and, you know, people being in people's pockets. I heard, Dave, that there were more fossil fuel lobbyists at COP26 than there were delegates. I don't know whether that's possible, but from your experience <laughs> of these things, is that likely? Um, I, didn't, I didn't hear that. Um, but somehow it doesn't surprise me. And you have to remember that the governments themselves, um, a lot of the countries are OPEC countries. And if you go back to the very first um, COP meeting, which was in 1995, um, the delegates there, they were saying, well, how, how do we come to a consensus? How about we make it, um, say, 80% of the governments agree that we have to reduce? And the OPEC company said, no way. Uh, everyone has to do. So right from the very start, uh, the oil producing companies, the OPEC countries rather, um, kind of stymied the whole process. And as I understand it, that's the way it's been ever since. Uh, a few countries can hold the rest of, rest of the countries, including, I might add, Tuvalu, who will go underwater this century if nothing is done. They just hold us all to ransom. We know, we know how to sort this, as I said. The tools are there, but they're not uh, burning fossil fuels ad infinitum, that is for sure. There's a... Every Saturday morning, whatever is on the radio, um, there's, a, <laughs> there's a guy who texts me and he always says, you know, Kim, that the problem is money. <laughs> if you got rid of money then you get rid of that problem. When will you learn this? <laughs> but he might be right, right? <laughs> I think he's right, for sure. You know, yeah. I mean, I don't know how we do it, but, hey... Bitcoin, I mean, maybe. Well, I, you know, the, it's greed. It's not money. It's greed, right? And it's people justifying what they do because they make money to do things that might be quite good, you know, because... The ends justify the means. I don't know. What's the morality of it, Dave? What's the morality? You and I were talking earlier about uh, freedom versus the good of the larger picture, the good of the world. You know, how far... People aren't prepared. This is... When will I stop talking? You may well ask. <laughs> people, people aren't prepared to have max vaccine mandates. We saw protests today. 
Uh, are they prepared to, to give up what they will need to give up in order to address climate change? Dave, please comment. Save me from my monologue. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, this is actually a question which I've struggled with for most of my life. And um, as I mentioned, I used to talk to Paul Callahan about this very thing. And that is, what are the rights of an individual versus the needs of the many? And this transfers to all sorts of things that we were doing right now, the existential threats that we were facing, like um, the right to not have a vaccine put into your body and the right to drive a massive, great utility vehicle. So, Kim, here's the thing to me. The person driving that utility vehicle has directly, and we know this, the science is un unequivocal, he's directly resulted, been part of the deaths of one, an estimated one billion animals in Australia during the 2019-2020 fires. So yes, he has a right to drive his vehicle, but look at what he's contributing to. So to me, it really comes down, you were talking about money, it comes down to costs. Can you tell me what the costs of a billion dead animals are? Or the heat dome effect, or a country like Tuvalu disappearing? These costs are extraordinary, and I'd put it to you that they far outweigh the rights of an individual to drive a massive great utility that does 20 litres per 100. A hundred percent, but also it's all so much more diffuse than that. You have to do a lot of intellectual work to join the dots to work out what effect your personal carbon footprint consumption actually has. You don't ever meet those billion animals. We're not going to meet the people in the future who suffer because of us. So, yes, you're right, but we live in such a distributed world of, like, invisible, you know, magical liquid capital that to get to that place, which is, which is completely correct, you have to do a lot of work, and it's, and it's very easy to, not, you know, you have to understand a lot of things about global supply chains and economics and, and so forth, externalities, um, and we just don't. And I, you know, I personally feel like I spend a lot of time feeling very guilty about flying on airplanes. And um, you doesn't know, stop you there, does it? Well, it did for a couple of years. I had, I had a couple of years of not doing it. Um, I caught a container ship um, with with my partner from Australia to New Zealand and back, and that was great. And it felt really cool. And then all our friends sort of would be like, "Oh, you're making us feel so guilty. Just start flying again." And then we started flying again. Um, but I was also very aware that my own individual actions were kind of vanishingly small because I'm just a, you know, one person among billions at this point of right. momentum of human history, you know, this speck of foam on the wave of, of human history. And, and so those kind of paradoxes are really hard to grapple with. However, I would vote for a crazy lefty greeny government that outlawed plane travel. I honestly would. But and if they see, stopped me, I'd be like, that's great. It's out but, of my hands. But what you've just said is exactly why it's become politically polarised in the same way as COVID has. People mm. who want something done about climate change are communists. And people who want to have vaccine mandates are communists or Nazis. It's hard to tell, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but that's right, isn't it? I mean, what you're arguing for, Dave and Tom, are, are governments that tell people what to do because free enterprise is not going to cut it. And people aren't signing up for that. How do you depoliticize it? Yeah, I, I don't think you can depoliticize it. Um, one of the things that we had tremendous success with last year with the first variant of COVID-19 was the so-called team of five million approach. Mm. That was five million New Zealanders, Kiwis, buying into what was quite a draconian uh, technique by the government, very strict lockdowns, perhaps the strictest in the world. And that worked. And the situation with climate change is that, unfortunately, we're going to have to have 8 billion people, a team of 8 billion people, working together to reduce emissions. Several contributors to Tom's book, Living with the Climate Crisis, 
refer to how well Aotearoa and the team of five million dealt with the COVID-19. Things are not looking so rosy now. Um, there is disarray and there is disinformation. And if, and if we can't even cope with that, then how on earth could the world cope with climate change? Where effectively it's going to be a, a lockdown of a lot of people's pleasures. I, don't, I feel a bit despairing. What about you? I mean, yeah, look, I feel like, yeah, it, it felt like there were some much crisper, teachable moments about 12 or even 18 months ago, right? Like when it, pre-Delta, right? It felt like this crazy thing happened. The New Zealand government uh, rolled out some very good comms, some very drastic, but also some quite short measures, and it was great. And we um, had leadership. Yeah, and we had leadership. Um, and, and there were teachable moments to be drawn from it. I, I feel like there's a broader lesson... That, that can still be taken from it, and there is some hope there, which is that we can drastically change um, the way we live our lives, and it can be really shit, but we can get used to it quite quickly as well. <laughs> um, and that we, you know, we are used to Dave being a floating head on the screen, and we're sitting apart, and we're wearing masks, and like, it's, it sucks. But also, like, I presume you know, not many of you were out in the anti-vax protest you know, so, so I, I, I do get... I don't know. And if, if you were, it's fine. That's cool as well. Um, so, so quite all right. You know, I sort of feel like... And when I try and, like, take the long philosophical, historical view, because that's one of the only things that gives me solace, I sort of feel like humans have lived in such drastically different circumstances across history and across cultures. We haven't always needed smartphones, although we need them now. Um, but if they were... If, if smartphone production ended because of whatever reason, we would get over it in a, in a few months or a couple of years and, and so forth. Um, whether or not we do it voluntarily, I think, is a very different question. Um, but if, you know, I, I feel like we, w we will actually adjust to all manner of shocks and privations and disruptions and compromises. Uh, and that is what the future is going to hold one way or another. Um, whether or not it's going to be pretty is a different question. How many people are going to be along for the ride is a different question. Mm. I don't know if that answers your question. No. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't answer my question. What do you think, Dave? Is there a way through this? Um, yeah, absolutely. And, um, that's a, a pretty draconian kind of a picture that Tom has painted. And for me, yeah, I'm, I waver between optimism and pessimism. I'm very optimistic when I look at technology that's already there. And uh, we, What are you thinking Tom, of? Yeah, you see, uh, Tom talked about coming to New Zealand on a container ship. And the idea there is that aviation may be an intractable problem. Well, you see, it isn't. Uh, in actual fact, there are, there's already technology around where you can make jet fuel out of CO2 from the atmosphere and hydrogen produced from renewable energy. That technology is there, but it's very, very expensive. Here's the thing, aviation at the moment does not take into account the damage to the atmosphere. Virtually nothing we do says, yeah, hey, um, if I drive this great big ute, um, then I'll need to pay, who knows, $500 a tonne for pulling the CO2 back out of the atmosphere. We're not doing that. We do that with water. If you pollute water, you know, it's very obvious. So I guess it's in your face, whereas literally... Whereas with CO2, a transparent gas, that goes into the atmosphere and it looks like, yeah, problem gone. So to me, economics, the way we cost things, has to change. We really do have to think, yep, these actions of mine, if I use fossil fuels, are damaging the atmosphere. That's what it's going to cost. Immediately we do that, we then make it viable to travel in aircraft that are powered by different kinds of jet fuel by vehicles which are powered by electricity or hydrogen. We changed the whole equation, and we haven't done that. And could we it, need to do it. Would a carbon tax do that if it, was, if it was implemented in the right way? Well, yeah, that, that's a fine. In New Zealand, since I think 2008, we've had the emissions trading scheme. Yeah. What, I mean, you, you talk to economists, they say, well, this is the hands-off way. It's Adam Smith's invisible hand will control the price. Well, of course, they haven't reckoned on governments tinkering with the scheme, um, pulling agriculture out of it altogether, making concessions here and concessions there. Mm -hmm. 
if you really did let it go without political inter intervention, maybe it would start to rein in um, the use of uh, carbon emitting um, activities. What do you make of the methane agreement at, at COP26 uh, as a matter of interest, Jay? Yeah, that's, um, that's a, a very encouraging thing to come out of it. Um, and, um, yeah, quite strange to see um, uh, the United States and China agreeing on that. Um, India hasn't. Um, but, no, I see that as a very positive thing. But, and we're not yeah. contributing anything, are they? No. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is the country where a <laughs> prime minister declared that it was our nuclear moment. Now, yep. it's all very well for you to kick off at ScoMo. Because he's an easy target, right? He is. He's big. But he's big mm. and he's bad. Mm. But, but, you know, what are we doing that's so great? We, 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 yeah, we, we, we banned offshore tax oil exploration, mm. but we're still doing it. And we're still doing it because James Shaw says, oh, well, you know, we need gas for a bit longer. Mm. I mean, that doesn't sound like we're operating in the urgency of a nuclear moment. My, my editor um, for this, this edition, um, Tom Rennie, um, when we were talking about this, this collection, he was like, yeah, it's great all the coal stuff you did, but cows are our coal, you know? <laughs> like, that's, they're the problem. Um, and, but it was hard to get anyone to, to write about it, and it was hard to find the way into it. I feel like Because what? Big People dairy... didn't want to be nasty to New Zealand? Yeah, or, or I guess there's, there's so many other um, New Zealanders... Um, don't want to poke farmers with too much of a sharp stick because they're scared they're getting their tractors and form a fishy stick show of strength down the main street. Or um, is that, or the yeah. entire economy could go down the toilet. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But I, 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 think, I think it also, I think there's some cultural stuff at play that farming is, is still, ha, has a legacy of being Salt this cherished earth. thing. Salt of the Salt earth. Salt of the earth, Colin Meads, you know, four up flats, that, you know, Farmers are beloved. Most of us are farmers or have farming relatives. And, you know, in the cal country calendar, you know, I, f I feel like there's still a lot of stuff wrapped up in that. And so, you know, it it's, hard to, it's hard to make a really strong critique of, of farmers and to just be like, sorry, you're basically, it's like having a field full of fax machines. Like, we don't need faxes anymore. Like, just get over it. You know, it's like, that's, that's not acceptable. You know, other industries come and go without us even blinking. But farming has to sort of be protected and subsidised and cherished at all. And we love meat pies, you know, myself included. You know, I, I sort of feel like Kiwis are obsessed with meat pies. Oh, my God, we you love haven't meat stopped eating meat yet? No, come on, I'd, I'd like to, I'd I, like I, to I add something. I meat for lunch. <laughs> but, but, Dave, you'd have a comment on this. OK, so I grew up as a kid in Taranaki. I spent a lot of time on farms as a kid. And I've been in, in contact with the farming um, area ever since. The thing about farming is to be a successful farmer, you have to be an environmentalist. And many of them are. They really look at the way they're farming. These are individual farmers. If you have a farming for, for a corporation, then it's a, a different situation. The thing about farming is that it's a 21st century industry, it's going to have to change dramatically to survive. And the reason for that is already there is disruptive technology out there which will totally change the way that proteins are produced within probably the next decade. Farming in New Zealand has adapted brilliantly. You remember 40-something years ago, um, the UK joined what was then called the EC, the European Community, and overnight this um, market where New Zealand just used to send huge hunks of meat to disappeared and farming farmers were going to go to the wall. Well, they didn't. Why didn't they? Because they adapted. Now we have a billion-dollar wine industry, which wasn't there back then. This is the early 1970s. And we have an, an enormous horticulture industry. So... With disruptive technology comes opportunities. If we do this right, if the farming sector does this right and looks at the signals that are out there, they will survive brilliantly into the 21st century. Are you suggesting that it's possible for us to carry on producing meat and dairy products and not 
continue to damage the climate? No, no, um, that's clearly impossible. What I'm suggesting is that farmers will adapt to different technologies that are out there, different ways of using the land to produce protein and other things that we need. Yeah, meat, meat in vats um, and then the paddocks being reforested. That would be a beautiful utopia. Yeah, but people, but hang on. People will still want to eat meat and dairy products. And if this is the argument, you know it is. If we don't produce it, then somebody who will produce it much worse will produce it. So, in fact, we're doing the world a favour by doing it relatively efficiently. Well, I guess that's one way of looking at it, Kim. But I have a question for you. Have you, ever, have, you ever, have you ever eaten an Impossible Burger? Mm -hmm. No, I haven't. Well, I have, and I could not tell the difference. It was a vegetable, but it tasted like a hamburger to me. Mm. So, um, yeah, I think if our farmers do not adapt over the coming one or two decades, they're going to be left behind. Interesting. So, yeah, maybe someone can uh, farm cows cheaply, but the fact is that these substitutes will be far cheaper to produce than um, having great big animals lumbering around on paddocks. What do you think our farmers would produce then? Oh, look, I, what, what I've looked at, um, just what Tom said, I think uh, farming has to get more into forestry, and I would particularly see natives New Zealand native trees as being the answer for New Zealand. Carbon um, farming. Yeah, Niwa have already shown, shown uh, astonishingly that Fiordland, where there have been permanent native forests for millennia, they are continuing to be a massive carbon sink. I thought, uh, see, I get confused, because I thought it had been shown that after a certain age, the trees started not being a carbon sink anymore, but actually yep. releasing carbon back into the atmosphere. Absolutely. Absolutely. And intuitively, you would think that is correct. But this new research from NIWA and also research from American organisations on the West Coast, uh, the US West Coast, up around the state of Washington and Oregon, are showing the same thing. So it's a very surprising finding. It's a, um, a programme called uh, Carbon Watch by NIWA and other organisations. Cool. Um, I need to break the news to you, ladies and gentlemen, that for all his dissing of Australia, <laughs> he's, um, Tom's going back there. Yep. <laughs> going back into the heart of darkness. It's true. It's true. And I'm wondering how you'll deal with that. Not only Australia, but Queensland. I know, gasps of horror <laughs> from around the room. He's got a flash gag at the University of Queensland. But nevertheless, how are you going to find it? How are you going to accord it with your principles? Um, well, luckily, luckily for, for you, Kim, and for everyone, my, my principles are malleable. Um, but no, look, I'm, I'm genuinely, because I've been researching in, in the recent years a book about preppers and, and doomsday people, survivalists, as well as climate activists. Doomsday, and, like Dave. Yeah. Well... <laughs> I'm not sure. Maybe like half the audience here, I'm not sure. I mean, I feel like we're all a little bit doomsdayish after COVID. We are COVID. all doomsdayers, right? Right. And you're mad if you're not. So, so I mean, one of, the, one of the jokes which may or may not stay a joke when, when the job came through was like, I'll move to Queensland. I'm sure it'll be great. But I'm going to take yachting lessons and um, be ready to um, escape by boat back to the Marlborough Sounds if, if, you know, the whole place burns to a crisp. And oh, so I'm that's... sorry. We might not take you back at that point. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but, but, no, look, I, um, I think... I, I mean, I've done a, I've done a lot of work, uh, sort of, I guess, um, tr trying to critique uh, the coal industry. Um, and uh, the, the book I, I wrote was about the Hazel coal mine in Victoria. But, of course, Brisbane's just down the road in Queensland terms, just a couple of thousand kilometres from the, the giant Adani mine, which is kind of like the biggest and most terrible coal mine ever. And it's far bigger than anything in Tolkien, you know? Like, it is absolutely humongous. And, I, you know, off the top of my head, I can't remember the figures, but... Hazelwood is an insanely large mine that, um, you know, was the most polluting mine in the world. And I think over its entire lifespan of 50 years um, is how much the Adani mine will produce every year. You know, so we're talking like 
scales of magnitude bigger. Uh, but there's also really interesting and exciting activism going on right now. You know, there's, there's indigenous crew who have been doing traditional ceremonies non-stop, and I think they're just going to do a non-stop ceremony. And in a very surprising move by the Queensland police, who are not, maybe not famed for their... Um, you know, toleration of indigenous issues. They're like, yeah, we're going to respect this and not interrupt it. And it's, it's permanently at the moment causing a blockade. So there's really interesting activism going on. And I think, I think in terms of moving right back into Heart of the Beast, it's scary, but it's right where I want to be as a journalist and as a writer. Mm. Um, and I guess to sort of see what really, um, uh, yeah, interesting as well as dark stories, you know, are going to Good. be told up and down the coast. Yeah. Um, just to remind us, Dave, give us a reality check. You said that we're set for 2.7% increase on pre-industrial temperatures by the end of the century, I think. Uh, 2.7 2. 7 degrees, come. What does that mean, 2.7 degrees increase? Um, catastrophic. And a it, word, catastrophic. So does it mean that the, the West Antarctic ice sheet will go, and if so, how long? Um, that's still not clear. Um, if you talk to glaciologists, they're a bit divided, but it's felt that that so-called tipping point is somewhere between one and a half and two degrees, and certainly by 2.7. Mm. And if that goes, then given the other things that would go before it, sea yes. levels will rise how much? Um, no one really knows that, and, and also it will take quite a long time for that to melt away. But the problem with these tipping points is that they're irreversible. Uh, to, to some extent, um, what we've done so far can be un, undone by pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere and locking it away in the form of rocks or whatever. Uh, for example, you asked the question about what farmers could do in New Zealand. Not only forestry, but there are, there's technology out there now using photovoltaics on farms where you can make sugar. And sugar is a feedstock that can be used to make carbohydrates and all sorts of other foods. So that's another, th another thing that farmers can do, and, and that's already started in Germany. Kim, Kim, can I have a run at that question yep. from a slightly different angle and with a like, subtle segue to read something from my book? Um, because good. in this... In this um, it's like going to a play where yeah. you see the instructions, exit stage left crying. Here's something I prepared earlier, um, because like, like for me, you know, having lived in Australia, I, I moved over there in 2001, and so for me, all this talk about catastrophic futures, like I've been living in that catastrophic future since at least 2009, and, and this is why. So this is a chapter um, called, at first the details horrify. They told us it was going to be bad, and then it was bad. We got up early in the morning, soaked all the tea towels and some spare sheets and strung them up over Johnny's veggie garden. Then we sat in the kitchen and waited for the sun to rise. It got hot, then hotter, then impossibly hot. We watched as Johnny's tomato and kale and snow peas drooped, shriveled, died. It was over 40 degrees centigrade. It was 10 in the morning. It was 2009. It was one more Saturday in Melbourne. As Johnny's garden cooked, I stayed inside and tried to watch DVDs, but it was too hot to concentrate. If I opened the front door, the air was a searing full-body punch. A friend texted me. I walked down the road to the shops, and, and my thongs melted off my feet. By 3.04pm on 7th of February 2009, it had reached 46.4 degrees centigrade. That was 10 degrees hotter than the human body. That was unlivable. I went to a barbecue that night. It was too hot to cook, so on the ride over, I bought a couple of big bags of salt and vinegar chips. When I got there, everyone else had done the same. <laughs> we sat around drinking beer, eating a fine range of salted snacks, and asking each other if anyone had heard from our friend Yenika. She was in rural Victoria, and no one could get through to her. Yenika was a volunteer firefighter, along with her dad, Witzer. That night, she escaped death, just, when Witzer drove their fire engine off the road, up over a curve, curb, through a chain-link fence and into the middle of a cricket oval, moments before the Marysville fire engulfed the town. As they hid in the fire truck with blankets over their heads, adrenaline buzzing in her ears, Yenika watched people's houses and gas tanks exploding on all sides. She watched a car driving around slowly, trying to find a safe place. She doesn't know what happened to that car. This is a quote from Yenika. I had the strong feeling of being very, very isolated. 
We could listen to the truck's radio, but we couldn't radio out ourselves, as all the radio towers had burnt down. The radio described all the fires around the state, but said nothing about Marysville. It was the strange feeling that the whole town was burning up, and no one outside the town even knew. Another friend lost her parents that night. They lived in a house in the bush. The house was gone. Their bodies were never found. It took days for the severity of the situation to become apparent. Overstretched emergency services eventually calculated that 173 people were killed in Victoria's Black Saturday bushfires in scenes that could only be, and were, described as apocalyptic. But as one of Australia's worst disasters swept across the state, I was sitting around with my mates drinking beer and eating salt and vinegar chips, hoping our other friends were okay. We lived with it, because what else could we do? I'll leave it there. <coughs> And so I guess for me, you know, it's, it's the end of the world and it's still life goes on. And that's the impossible thing we have to, we have to live with. I feel like New Zealand's almost one of the, the few countries that, you know, hasn't had, you know, biblical level disasters. You know, like the, the forest fires are getting worse and the floods are getting worse, but it's not quite at that insane level. Like Australia's had some just unbelievable weather and so has Europe, Europe. United States. Yeah, Bangladesh, you know, almost everywhere else. And so we're, we're doing really well here, but it's, we're in the... But does the that mean that we can do less because we're not afflicted so much? Well, I'm not sure. I don't know what you think about that, Dave. I mean, not legitimately, but feel as if we're not impacted so severely, so we can be more complacent. I think it's true that life will go on here a lot better for a lot longer. I don't know what you think about this one, Dave. And I, I think maybe for some people the, the crisis doesn't quite feel as urgent. Probably none of the people in this room, you probably wouldn't be here if you were in, in the, that situation. But I think there's more of a buffer zone to yeah. burn through, maybe. <laughs> yeah, when you look at the science, um, New Zealand is surrounded by massive oceans. And so there's a hysteresis or a delayed heating effect with those oceans um, that is delaying the onset of the worst situations for the country. But they will come, and with them, unfortunately, uh, the warming ocean uh, will bring more and more uh, tropical cyclones further south. And um, they're, they're quite random, but when they hit New Zealand, the, the damage is extraordinary. And what it's also going to be, I mean, I, I, I talk to people who say that the Syrian civil war was a consequence of climate change and mm -hmm. drought. And, and what we're going to see is climate refugees. And there's no way New Zealand's going to be able to not be affected by that. Mm -hmm. We're going to be the last boat in the ocean by the sounds of it, Dave. What do you think? Everybody's going to want to come here. Including the Australians. Yeah. Including the Australians. Including me in about 10 years, maybe. <laughs> Including all your preppers. Yeah. Right? That's right. I need to write a book and say, it's terrible in New Zealand, don't come, it's, you know, it's all wrong. Um, also later on in your introduction, Tom, you talk about going on a meditation um, mm. retreat mm -hmm. in um, Kampuchea, Camp yep. a yoga meditation retreat. And your guru, Joel, when asked about, you know, the collapsing of civilization due to climate change, he said, well... We're in for a wild ride. He said, in many traditions, there is this idea that the world goes through great cosmological cycles of creation, growth, collapse, and destruction, which you didn't find satisfactory at the time. Mm. But maybe that's what we're going to have to accept. What do you think? Well... I mean, maybe I, I, we can't fix I, this, is I, what I'm saying. I, I, yeah, I, I think... For me personally, there's, there's all the stuff we can try and do as good citizens. And for me, that's far more about political action than about recycling, um, to be honest. It's about, and it's about activism, really. It's moving into that space. But there's the inward journey towards um, inequanimity and, and grieving not just our in inevitable deaths and the inevitable deaths of everyone that we know and love, which is Jeez, the standard... Jeez, I never meant to go there, ladies but that's and gentlemen. The you know, that's the standard tragedy of the human condition and that's what culture is designed to kind of make us ignore, right? But, but there's something bigger here, which is like maybe everything else is going to end as well. You know, maybe having kids, they're not going to carry your legacy on because there's not going to be any environment oh, carried on. Oh, God! And so that's the... 
that's the meta grief that I think we have to start processing. And I mean, yoga and meditation is as good a place as any to, yeah, to start with. Yeah, but as long as it doesn't um, disempower you, all yes, right? yes, yes. How can we, how can we deal with, how can we do stuff without feeling that impossible weight of the end of the world if we fail? Existential I'm not question. sure. All right. <laughs> um, Dave, I want you to take us back, because it gives us an idea of the context and the time span. I want you to take us back to when you set up the Bearing Head Monitor Station uh, near Wellington in 1972, please. And I think you have a piece in your book that you want to read about that. Okay, yeah, I think, um, yeah, the very start of the book, I talk about that. So I will read uh, from the introduction. A southerly storm at Bearing Head, New Zealand, can be a terrifying experience. The wind screams in from the Southern Ocean and races over the cliff edge with a force that numbs mind and body. The noise shrieks by at 40 metres per second like a Count Dracula soundtrack, a blood-curdling whine accompanied by an eerie howling that varies in pitch by octaves. Anything not well bolted or screwed down blows away, never to be seen again. Anemometers designed to measure wind speed routinely self-destruct in the gales. Huge waves pound the beach. My colleague Peter swears he saw one 12 metres high crash onto the rocks below us. I remember a storm that lasted more than seven days. Since the late 1800s, many ships have wrecked in the vicinity and it's easy to see why. It's not a place for the faint-hearted, especially at night, when the lighthouse keepers worry about the ghosts of seafarers long since drowned. Bearing Head is the sampling station where I spent countless days and nights alone making the first ever continuous baseline atmospheric carbon dioxide measurements in the Southern Hemisphere. The work was arduous and demanding and came at a huge personal cost. Exhaustion and loneliness were my constant companions. It was 1972 and those and subsequent measurements at the site confirmed that humanity's impact on the atmosphere was a global phenomenon, a dreadful discovery I've lived with for 50 years. Half a century ago, serendipity set me, as a 22-year-old physics graduate, on a path to becoming one of a small group who provided proof that human activities were damaging the atmosphere by dramatically altering its chemical and physical properties. Our measurements showed that atmospheric CO2 was increasing around New Zealand as well as in the Northern Hemisphere. So the book, The Alarmist, chronicles my 50-year journey with the atmosphere, as you can imagine, as one of elation and despair. But the atmosphere itself has a history dating back to the dawn of time, one which will continue when we are long gone. How has it changed with time, and what have I seen during my own life? Thank you. And what you've seen is carbon in the atmosphere going from 321 parts per million to what are we now? Well over 400 um, at now. Bearing, at Bearing Head, it's around about a four, 411. And the global average at the moment, because you have to take into account the higher concentration in the Northern Hemisphere, is about 415. Do you divide mm. the world into people who accept climate change and the need to do something about it, people who deny it, and people who think, oh, well, we'll be all right, mate? <laughs> is, is, that, is that the kind of... Spectrum, Dave? You know, that, that's a fascinating question because it makes me think back, and yes, I did do that, but now things have changed and um, 
the climate deniers these days get very little oxygen and a lot of that has to do with people like you, Kim, um, extraordinary investigative journalists who can see right through uh, someone who's a climate denier and pseudoscience. And uh, we no longer have what I used to battle with, and that was uh, false balance stories, where a climate denier would come up with something, get half a page of a newspaper, and the remaining page would be devoted to uh, 5,000 climate scientists. False balance. We don't get that anymore. So times have changed. There are relatively few people now who don't sign on to the fact that our climate is changing. I mean, um, in many parts of the world, you just have to look out the window. In Alaska, actually even in Saudi Arabia, that's one of the fastest growing places in the world for temperature increases. So interesting question. Apart from speaking out, and, and your personal life is, is kind of a, a small carbon footprint. I know that you've, you live in an insulated cottage and you ride a bike and drive an electric car and live close to public transport hubs. It's, that's not enough. If all of us did that, that's not enough. What can we do? Were we back to being a team of five million, what could we do? Well, I think um, a very big thing is young people today, uh, the climate strikers. So I work very, very closely with them, the 15, 16, 17-year-olds, brilliant young people, absolutely brilliant, and they are absolutely pissed off with what's going on. Here's the thing. They're not, they're not voters now, but they soon will be, but their parents are voters the best outcome is what I've, what I've alluded to is the fact that now more and more giant organisations, and these are things like pension funds who have trillions of dollars to invest, are waking up to the fact that, hey, you know, if we have climate change and everything goes to custard, our whole business is gone. The same with insurance companies and the same with uh, companies who invest in fossil fuel extraction. And so they are now starting to pull the plug and you're getting the situation in, in countries like the United States where organisations will no longer fund new coal-fired power stations. It's just not worth it. Right. So governments working with politicians, I've described this in my book, as like walking through treacle. Working with politicians, in my experience, has not been uh, very profitable. But working with these other organisations is, and that's where I see the change coming from, economically when these organisations really start to put the hard word on governments and say, hey, you know, uh, investing and actually subsidising, a lot of countries remember subsidised oil and gas extraction, we're not going to have a bar that, we're not going to fund that. We have a roving microphone, so if you have a question for Tom or Dave, um, stick your hand up and a microphone will be en route to you. Here we have one in the front row. How does the Green Movement address the fundamental reality that working-class people need jobs? Um, first of all, in my opinion, we're all working-class. Um, my father was a technician. We had zero cash when I was a kid. The thing is, we're in the 21st century now. Um, coal is a sunset industry. Green technology is not. I don't see any reason why someone working in a coal mine or, say, an oil and gas engineer, people with skills, can't start working in the green industries. Skills are needed. People are needed. In this book, um, one of the big myths I wanted to bust is that the Australian coal industry is full of working-class people. The people in this book, their starting wages was around 125,000K, going up to senior management talking 350k. These are millionaires with investment properties riding on the myth that the coal industry is still working class. It got privatised out the wazoo in the 90s in Australia. It might be different in Glasgow, in, in this book that I wrote. Um, and it went from providing many jobs with, for not that much money to a very small amount of jobs for a lot of money. Um, but these people culturally don't identify, you know, they're not driving Mercedes, they're driving utes, and they're not wearing fancy suits, they're wearing, you know, 
stubbies and like manly gear and with the coal on their faces. So, so in, in this industry in Australia, and this is central to the toxic politics in Australia, there is a myth that coal, the coal industry is, is working class and it is anything from, from that. It's the top 2% of income earners in Australia. Hey, um, I'm a PhD student at UC working on um, the electrification of large-scale transport. Uh, I see any efficiency gains that we make there swallowed up by growth in the economy. Do you think that a growing economy, growth-based economy, is sustainable? Uh, Do you think we should have a degrowth, put the handbrakes on? Yeah. Yep. 100%. 100%. Yeah, that's right, because we, we didn't have... Um, smartphones that are basically computers just like humming away in our pockets. We didn't used to have like all these devices. Like if, if that kind of rampant growth is just eating up efficiency gains, we're kind of, we're stuck and spinning. Um, but again, that's going to be a tough sell because you're going to be fighting capitalism and the advertising industry and all of the very clever people who like making money. Um, also, I don't, I mean, your old friends of Paul Callaghan would never have suggested that we, we gave up on growth. Dave, would you? Yeah, no, it's a tough one, isn't it? Um, if you go right back to basics, we live on a finite earth. You just have to have, have a look at a beautiful picture of this planet from a satellite. You can see it's beautiful, it's finite. How could it possibly be that unchecked growth can be logical. How can it work on a finite planet with finite resources? It's illogical. We just can't keep doing this. We have to stop. And on that note, <laughs> I feel like the guy's just texted in, it's money, Kim. <laughs> um, thank you. Please give thanks to Dave Lowe and Tom Doyle. And to Kim, and to Kim.